What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn, we've got to do a new ad, mate. We do. We're long overdue. We're not going to be sponsoring Einzerwiener anymore. Yeah, well, fuck that no guy. longer. He's fucking not paying us. <laughs> no. We've just figured out. No. We just, he's sitting right here in front of us, <laughs> and we've just figured out he hasn't actually been paying all no this wonder. time. No there's no bread and milk on my table fuck. in this house. After we were just nice to him. <laughs> we're, just, him. we're just flattering him. We were just whining and dining him, <laughs> looking after him like a big fucking client. We'd look after and then we find out he hasn't find been paid out he the hasn't bill. Been he's shit bed. He's doing it right now, so we're <laughs> we may as well tell people that if they're in Australia and you need dog gear. Don't get it from him. Well, get it from wait, him. Wait until he pays the get bill. Get it from him so that he can pay us. <laughs> What's your stupid website, Jason? E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com. There you go. Get your stuff from there. Okay. All right, on to the real sponsors. Yes, the people who actually pay the bills. Caninesuticals. Yep. The best caninesuticals. Premium grade, yep. human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yeah. it. Yeah, it's great shit. Dan Croft. Yes, in Canada. In Canada. Yes, Toronto, Canada, I believe. Yeah. Yes. What were we pushing for him? It's puppy class. Puppy class, yeah. Amazing puppy classes in a great facility. Barbara DeGroote. From the heart dog training. Barbara just loves us and we she love She just Barbara. loves us. Barbara is our sugar mama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that literally is the thing's called, right? Yeah. The tear that she called. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the sugar mama tear. Thank you, Barbara. We Thank appreciate you. Thank you, Barbara. We love you. Horny George Kittredge. Yes. Rowdy Hound Dog Boxes. Yeah. The yeah. box is incredible. I saw it for the – did we talk about this? Have we done an we ad have. since? We yeah. have talked about how amazing the boxes is. You and I travelled from – where did you pick us up? What, what airport that was, was that? Uh, in Colorado. Colorado. He showed us the prototype. Yeah. We was talking through it. You and I were sort of thinking this is never going to take off. Yeah. And finally – he it's does it. Deal. He pulls it off. Not only does he pull it off, it's fucking brilliant. Like it's safe. And he also does classes where he teaches people how to use them as well. Like teaches the dogs how to get up on the bike seat and then load into the box itself. And it's bloody brilliant. It's incredible. Really proud of George. Lovely guy. And I'm really happy that this is paying out for him. All right. Daniel Trapino? It's actually Tropiano. He corrected me. Okay. So anyway, Daniel Trapino. <laughs> Dog Club South South Australia. Australia. Yeah. It's a cool little facility he's got there. It's a great facility. Get in, check it out. He does all all the training. Yeah, he's decked it out. He's got it all looking schmick. It's a bit street. It's a bit edge. It's a bit kitschy. Yeah, he's got some cool artwork and stuff there. Check it out for sure. It's great. It's about time South Australia started lifting its game. Good on you, Daniel. Yeah, leading the charge down there. Well done. We got a new one. Who we got? Tailored canines. We have two. They contacted us on Instagram, yep. stumbled into our advertising <laughs> tier, and yep. away we go. Yep. So they're in Canada. They are. They're in Ontario. Gold, Nipopo gold people, yeah, gold multiplicators. I think, I think they're a gold multiplicator. Yep. yep. So if you're recently certified as a silver school and you're mm-hmm. looking for somewhere to do your gold yep. and you're around the Canada or just anywhere up that northern part of the Americas, Check it out. Taylor so they Canines. do puppy, adult group classes, private and board and train programs. There you go. Taylor so thank you for jumping on and advertising with us. Hey, everyone. 
If you would like to be an advertiser, <laughs> do it. Reach out to us. Shut up, you buffhead. So I know that on Patreon, and we appreciate people just putting money in there. That's wonderful. Yes, but we do have to limit how many people we have, and so get in contact with us. Make sure that we actually can serve you, and that we actually, you know, can provide you value as an advertiser, and that you align with our ethos as well. Of that, course, that's very important. That would be appreciated. To recap. Our sponsors are, and the people we love because they give us a lot of money. Yes. Well, it's not a lot of money, but some money. Yeah. Einzewick, he promises he's going to do it. He's look, I'm looking at him now. I'm looking at the reflection of him fixing Has it. Has that gone through yet? No, because still South Wales has got shit pines. <laughs> Dan Croft, puppy classes, yep. cool facility. Barbara de Groot. Amazing sugar mama, love her, from the hot dog training. George Kittridge. Rowdy hound dog boxes. Daniel Tropiano, Tropino. Tro- dog clubs. Troppy <laughs> Daniel. Dog clubs. <laughs> Australia. Yeah. And new to the family, tailored canines. Yeah. All the way from Ontario, Canada. So we've got two Canadians. That'll do advertising. Yeah. Mo- do. Mostly from the United States. One from Oz. Well done. Well played. Thank you, sirs and Matt. Check them out. They support us. You yeah. should support them. Yep. Here's a show. There's a show now. Here's a show. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And joining us all the way, presently in New York and formerly from Germany, is Dr. Melanie Uda. I hope I got that right. We, we practiced before we started. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. Dr. Melanie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I have to say I'm in Atlanta right now, not New York. but Oh, you're enough. in Atlanta. Yes. <laughs> my bad. Close Sorry. Enough. Same coast. Of yeah, the exactly. My information is not up to date. Hey, so. Glenn showed me your content just a little while ago, and I've been obsessively going through your Instagram and your website, and Mm. it's actually very, very fascinating. And what seems to me to be obviously very well educated, you have a PhD for God's sake, but thoughtful and well-presented, poignant and useful neuroscience information about dog training. Absolutely. And so before we get on to talk about that kind of stuff, can you just give us a rundown on your past, how this came to be and like where your training is from, how you got into doing what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So you might have to stop me at some point because my my story isn't really straightforward because it came about like in ways that I didn't expect myself I'm German, so I'm originally from Germany, and I've been in the States for 10 years now. What part of Germany? Hamburg. I was born in Vienna. It's a very small town in the middle of, it's the green heart of Germany, so they say. And uh, for my for my PhD, I moved to Hamburg, which I think is the most beautiful city in Germany. So you should definitely go visit if you haven't. For sure. And then from there, I moved to, to New York City. Before I go into how this all came together, I have to say, just because it will make more sense, my decision-making is rather dramatic in terms of my career and and lifestyle. So this is how I moved from so many different angles into what I'm doing right now. But when I came to, you know, you go to school and then like, okay, what I'm going to do with my life. And one of the, the very first memories I have when it comes to animals in particular is in my small hometown, there was a homeless person and he had a dog. He was hitting the dog with a fist on his head. Now, retrospectively, I believe this person was suffering from some mental disorder, whatever, and was doing it kind of compulsively. And the dog was just sitting there. And I was I was very little. I was, I think I was like 12 years old or something. And I was thinking, why is this dog not going? I would run. I would not endure this. And the dog was just sitting there. 
And, you know, as a 12 years old, I didn't know anything about anything. And I was actually threatening by calling the police. That guy was threatening back. And then I ran because I didn't know how to handle that situation. This was just one of those moments like, okay, I want to do something with biology and animals. And I was like, I'm just going to go to college and study biology. So I did. It turns out it's not at all what you think it is. It's not just heading deer in the woods. (laughs) I actually had to dig out dirt and whatnot. All these things came together. But it's like, okay, that's cool. And I did all that. And then eventually I was going to move from my hometown to Hamburg because I was really interested in anything disease-wise. So I did my PhD at the Institute for Tropical Medicine and was really honing into immunology. But eventually that was like, okay, well, what do I do now? And it's like, okay, I've got to do something in a different city. And I always liked New York. So I was like, you know, you see all this stuff in in the TV. So I I moved to New York City and that's where really things kind of took shape in terms of what I really want to be doing. But again, in different ways than I thought, because up until this point, my last nine years was all about this academia world. You research, you publish, you hopefully find something that no one else has found. And hopefully someone reads what you publish or not. And maybe you get funding or not. Like, you know, all this, this drama around academia. And in between, it's like, okay, well, you know, I'm here in New York City. I'm at Columbia University. I didn't know what Ivy League school is until I moved to the U.S. I was like, okay, that means something. Let me go somewhere where people probably benefit from what I'm doing here. And it was all about immunity and nutrition. And I started also working collaborations with other hospitals about depression and mental disorders. So this is where I got in touch with the brain and the neuroscience and how it's all connected. I was like, cool, I'm going to go to Thailand. I was like, why? I don't know, retrospectively, why Thailand? And there was some sort of a tuberculosis clinic and I volunteered there. And I was like, I'm going to bring all this knowledge. You know, I know this. I've done this for nine years and I'm going to help you. However that looks like, you know, this whole kind of Western world comes and rescues mm-hmm. <laughs> the, other, the other side of the world kind of mentality. And I did. And what I ended up doing was I was creating Google Sheets to organize their data. Nothing to do with what I was researching. Nothing to do with what I was what I thought was groundbreaking stuff in the world of disease and mental disorder. And I was like, okay, well, that's an experience. And I was riding my little bike through this town, this little town in Thailand, and there were all these street dogs. And I was like, oh, cool. I get to see also some animals and observe those, right? Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> it's like, I didn't expect all of that either <laughs> because I had little lizards in my muesli bowl And I guess I was content enough to take pictures, but still kind of freaking out a little bit. And it was, yeah, these street dogs and they were like, they're cool. And they started chasing me and started barking at me and starting showing all these aggressive signs that you would probably label an aggressive dog, maybe. And I was just like getting out of there as as fast as I can with my little bike. That was also eye-opening. I was like, damn, I thought I know things. I can't connect with these dogs. I don't know how to handle them. I don't know how to read them. I don't know how to talk to them. I don't know what to do with them. And I was Mm -hmm. dreading going to work to this clinic every single day because I had to bike by these dogs. So I kind of was observing them from a distance. And we kind of, I like to think we kind of made peace. It's just like, this is me every day. (laughs) I don't, I come in peace. But I kind of went back home after this was like about almost two months. I went back home a little deflated. I was like, what the heck am I doing here in this? You know, no one knows what I'm doing. No one cares about it. And they don't even need it. 
And on top of that, I didn't know what to do with this when it came to real life scenarios. And yes, I haven't really worked directly with dogs, but I still, my whole education was based on animal physiology and behavior and stuff. So I didn't know how to connect other than my having my cat at home, you know. I was like, okay, enough of this. I'm going to quit my 12 years well-planned out career in academia and do something different that actually matters in terms of hands-on application. And not that the research doesn't matter. It's not my point. But for me, it just didn't feel like that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Instead of going into dog training, I was like, well, I need something else because one of the diseases you have as an academic is you don't know nothing and nothing is ever enough. So I was like, I need some skill that is a little bit more applicable. And I just had a hunch that in terms of, you know, how people learn and giving lectures in at Columbia and teaching people for quite some time at this point and knowing me, how I like to ramble, I'm probably rambling right now, is people need to have some tangible things to learn and people need to like be able to follow and sit with it, marinate in it. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I want to do some hands-on stuff with animals, cats, dogs, but I need a website, I need an app, I need this, I need that, I need all the technology. So let me go into coding. So I learned coding and a data science. And <laughs> <laughs> I need that. Took a hard right turn. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know if it was necessary. It does help now, but you know, I was like, okay, let's do that first. And it's like, I don't know how to run a business. I don't know how to scale. It was in academia. It seems like I was really, really blind how the world really works. So I went into corporate and was the head of data science and some, some corporate world while I was starting to train dogs. And that ratio of being corporate world and doing data science and training dog, dogs shifted. And then eventually I would fall into dog training with all the stuff that I did up until then, you know, this combining mm-hmm. of the educational part, the really brainy, nerdy part of being hands-on practicality, but also having some, I care a lot about the user experience. Maybe you see this with my Instagram, like how they mm-hmm. how they consume my videos, how they consume mm-hmm. my content. I like pretty slides. I like good videos. So all that came together. And that's basically where I'm now. You said something really fascinating just then that you have a fusion, I think, of education and practicality. And something that I've certainly observed, usually people with PhDs in the dog space speak quite well, but don't handle dogs really at all. Or when you do observe them handling dogs, it's very clunky. They know what they should be doing, but very few have the capacity to actually pull it off. And there's usually a fair amount of divide between the academic part of people who are telling you how it should be done, but the people who have the skills to actually do it, there's usually a big gap in between that. But what I have really been thinking the whole time I've been digesting all of your content is you seem to fill that gap because I've watched you train the dog. You're very skillful with the dog. You move well, you're connected with the dog. You have information on play where you're demonstrating how to do it and you can actually do it. That's a very rare thing for someone who has letters after their name to be able to do. Tell us a little bit about like, how did you develop those tangible skill sets? Obviously, you're, you like to study, you're an educated person, you're very good at, at the research side of things. But how did you develop the hands-on practical skills that you have? Because you're, you're very good. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And the, the person or the category of academics not being able to handle smoothly a dog, that was me at the beginning too, 100%. It's been a journey for sure. So for me, 
I guess in terms of making dramatic decisions also comes with not ever being fully satisfied with what it is in the moment. And as I was having my own dog, my first dog, and realizing, I don't know how to, you know, what to do with this dog that does certain things in that moment, um, I started to go into research mode, but the opposite direction. I was mm -hmm. shadowing trainers. I was going down the social media rabbit hole of trainers doing this, trainers doing that, all this pure positive versus balanced training camps kind of concepts until you find someone that kind of clicks in terms of how they teach dog training, hands-on dog training. For me, it's on a very intellectual basis. I look at dogs from a very intellectual kind of point of view and how to connect that with what you actually do in the moment. And often there are a lot of discrepancies. What you think should be happening mm -hmm. is not necessarily happening and vice versa. And kind of honing into this and just, you know, for me, it was just, okay, let's do this and try this. And why is that? And I would sit there after I trained my dog for hours and trying to connect the dots and doing it again. Now I know I have probably overwhelmed my own dog at the beginning because he had to go through the training with me and really trained me. And I think that is something that, you know, being, it takes a lot of being humble for someone who comes in with like 12 years education and uh, whatever letters behind your name, being humble and say, I don't know anything, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of what is actually helpful with the dog in front of me. But I'm actually taking that to like what I can do it, right? And that helped me a lot because I was able to then connect the dots better and asking why and answer my own questions. And not everyone has that that luxury to say, well, I studied this, right? I can answer this question fine. Troubleshoot probably faster. That helped me to to develop this kind of approach that I have right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, it's a tricky one because I think the hands-on practical nature of dog training, that's actual dog training. Like that's the <laughs> actually doing it, but linking it in. I sometimes wonder about people like you when you engage with trainers, like say meatheads like me, no formal education, left, you know, left high school, joined the army, learned in the army how to handle dogs and then have just learned from dog trainers about dog training, right? Hands on, I can, I can do it. I do it quite well. But I think what we do in the dog training space is a lot of what I call like bro science. You know, we hear like a concept and pass it on as though we understand it. Yeah, for but sure. in reality, what I understand is if I push this button, this happens. I can observe a dog's behavior. I know how to read a dog. I know how to manipulate behaviors. I know how to do that stuff. And then I think that we try and then go, see, and it works because of this science that I don't actually understand. Because I do understand how to get the dog to do it and do it really well, but I try and make these links to the science part. And I sometimes wonder, as I was watching a lot of your stuff, I was like, I wonder if people like me drive this poor Dr. Melanie crazy as we're trying to explain what dopamine is with our bro science version. And I'm sure that <laughs> you've probably read a dozen papers or more on what it really is. Or we cling to things from deep in the past, especially for me, there's things that I've learned over 30 years ago, and I've still used that as a reference point where I've met other people like you and they've said, hey man, it's time to move on. Like you're three decades behind in, in science. There's a lot of research that's taken place since that time. It's time to update your material and find out what's really going on in the world of research and science. I agree with Pat and a point that he said before about your capabilities as being a scientist and also a dog trainer and having a capability on it. There's a lot of amazing 
pragmatic trainers, when they put their hands to dogs, they can whip up some incredible magic. But having a conversation with them, I'd rather pull teeth out of my head. They actually do not know how to have a conversation. Their vocabulary is very poor. Their research is very poor. They actually don't know how to explain what they're doing. Put their hands on a dog. It's an entirely different conversation altogether. Combining this, that's, I think, where the magic lies. Because for someone who's 30 years of experience, I admire them. I think there's so much I can learn from them. Like nuances that you might be doing, you're not even aware of. Because your beautiful brain has adjusted and learned too without you consciously knowing what you're doing, right? Because you're in tune probably with the dog in front of you. I want to know that. And then I want to link it to some random study that has been published so that we can communicate that, right, for someone who might want to know why is that the way of doing it and why is that not the way of doing it? You know, for me, I feel like I'm more the one who is inadequate in terms of I don't have 30 years of hands-on experience, right? I come here and telling you certain things about the dog's brain. Anyone who wants to listen to this, I feel like, yay, <laughs> I'm so good. I'm so happy. I'm so feel honored that someone is interested in this. But at the end of the day, you know, if you think of like, okay, who do we need more people who are on the ground actually teaching these dogs to be a soldier, to be a therapy dog, to be a pet dog, or someone who does science? I guess in short term, we get along or we get far enough without the science. But for me, in terms of my overall objective, is less about all this controversy about what method is right or wrong. It's more about how can we push the envelope? You know, how can mm-hmm. we just take it to something where we haven't been before? Because dogs are obviously incredible animals. And do we really know all their potential? I don't know. And how can we get there? Yeah, it's fascinating. You brought it up. So I'll pick it apart just a little bit. Controversy between techniques. Can you explain to us sort of where do you lie on that? Now, I know that you lie with effectiveness and kindness and compassion. I'm sure that various camps have probably tried to grab a hold of you and sort of make you their own. And tell us a little bit about your experience of that and where you feel as though you fall without needing to label yourself. Just how's your training look? No, that's a good question. And it made me wonder, like with my content, finding some some audience I did have people reach out. It's like, where do you lie in between this balanced versus pure positive or like training techniques? I can't tell. I'm like, that's good. I don't want you to be able to tell because it's not about that. Whatever I do is not about that. The current discussions has come to a point where it's all about kind of like who is right. Yeah. And it also has become very political. And both camps and like really incredible talented handlers have incredible skills. The ones that are pure positive and only work with treats and positive reinforcement, they can take it to the next level in terms of the the reinforcement schedule and the timing and, and the markers and whatnot. So they have such a good eye for like what to reinforce at what time with what intensity. That's awesome. But the same applies to really good balance trainers that have mastered how to even saying the word punishment is already <laughs> so loaded, but using corrections or punishment in such ways that it manipulates the dog without the dog going into fear conditioning. Because, you know, in terms of the brain, punishment, feeling punished or feeling feared of the punishment, there are slight differences. Mm-hmm. Mm. And 
really understanding like the level of intensity that you can manipulate. You can manipulate the intensity with a piece of food, but you can do this with some leash pressure and whatnot, right? So they're like really experts in both camps that have skills that each other can benefit from that. But something that both camps, I think we need to talk more about, and that kind of deviates from this tool-focused discussion is understanding that there is no pain without pleasure and there is no pleasure without pain, no matter what you do, no matter what your goal is, and how can we leverage that to create dogs that are mentally resilient, that know how to cope with stress and yet feel motivated, don't feel like they have to go into avoidance when it comes to working with the, the handler. This together, I think, is kind of almost creating a third category, if you will. Does it tilt more towards, yes, using corrections, punishments, stress, you know, in that sense, for sure. But I think there is kind of like a skill that is needed in terms of stress doesn't have to be as minimal as possible, but stress mm -hmm. doesn't have to be all the time either. <laughs> yeah. So what is the right dosage of this for the dog in front of you? Yeah, I agree. I've had similar questions. I'm a balanced trainer. I use all the tools, but I get similar questions from my content. I've had plenty of people ask me, I can't tell which one you are because I talk a lot about reinforcement schedules because that's how you build behaviors. But I also talk about how to stop behaviors from happening. Or I work with some dogs that uh, have to do what they're told to do. And so then you, we use some compulsion at those points and, and, and we need to be able to compel those dogs. And so like, I think that that broad spectrum, but I think that that third category you're talking about usually ends up just being effectiveness. Like it's just people who are actually good at doing it and it doesn't really, there's lots of ways to do it. And even if you get two people who really staunchly call themselves force-free or call themselves balanced trainers and give them the same problem, they're not necessarily going to solve it in the same way. So like it's effectiveness that is really the category I want to put myself in. And I think that I respect the training of people who do the same. Certainly that's what I get the vibe from you is that it, like it's really about whether it works or not and that's what's really only important and the experience of the dog along the way. You mentioned something just then about building mental resilience. You have quite a lot of stuff on that. And so can mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about the ways to go about that, why you think that's so effective, the downstream effects of building early mental resilience in a dog? If you really think about what we put our dogs through in the 21st century is insane. Mm -hmm. And neither our brains, nor our dog's brains, nor any animal's brain is, has kept up in terms of evolution, adjusting to it genetically. Yes, there is some changes in the genetics and all that, but at the pace that we are exposing our dogs to triggers, let it be just the urban environment, New York City, all the honking, let it be, I want to take my dog on the plane to travel. That's crazy. And that's like for dog. It's like, I don't know what it even is, you know? And what can we do to help our dogs not crumble like a cookie when they have to get exposed to this kind of stress? And a treat is just not going to cut it, right? But at the same time, you know, forcing a dog to go through something in the moment is not going to be helpful either. So what our responsibility is kind of like acknowledging that and taking responsibility to train them for it. And that's what I think is mental resilience that we all have to, I don't know, expose our dogs, whether we want it or not. <laughs> and most of the time we don't want it because we also live in a society where everything is 
uh, supposed to be pleasurable and nice and and we're all happy and we want our dogs to never suffer and suffering and being able to to work through stress are two very different things and I would never let my dogs suffer right but I want them to understand that sometimes you have to go through stress if it's very short term and you're going to be okay because I'm here and I told you so in a way <laughs> mm-hmm. and the way to get there though is is very interesting and the 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 newest studies, a body of scientific research and really high-end journals are coming out. Is, and it's nothing new. We just know more now how the, the underlying neural circuits work together to do so is short-term stress. It's the best way to create mental resilience. Mm. And mm. see, I see you're both nodding because, you know, as experienced trainers, you know that you get a sense for it. You have the intuition. How do you say that and communicate that? And we now understand much better that chronic stress can be recovered by short-term stress. Yes, it's not been necessarily done in dogs, but other animal studies and in humans too. And creating that tells us that if a dog learns to to have this this rush of cortisol and adrenaline, it's like all that, holy cow, what's going to happen to me? And then recover from it. And then next time something even worse happens that dog will be so much better off because that dog learn to cope their, with their own kind of internal stimuli, with their own panic inside and not go all the way out to panic, right? Mm-hmm. And if you don't do this, I think this is much more important. If you don't help our dogs do that, what happens is they they not only crumble, any kind of stressful experience might actually cause trauma. And now you have this traumatic dog that then turns into an anxious dog. And now they bring it to, sorry, this is not going down the rabbit hole, but now then they're going to bring it to a vet who diagnoses this dog with generalized anxiety. And now we're going to put this dog on medication lifelong. But we could have prevented that because it's a chain reaction. It happens in the brain and the brain learns and adapts all the time. But we can steer in a way that it's more beneficial. So we don't have to do all these things that you know, are preventable. I think what you just touched on there. There's this saying I sometimes hear, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. But there's degrees to that, you know, and I think that sometimes it happens with people as well is that we, we're sheltering too much. We're trying to protect people from bad experiences mm-hmm. and what we end up doing, and same with dogs. And then we, it ends up being that something that could have been just a mild experience, kind of no big deal can turn out to be a really big deal because there was no prior experiences, no learning to deal with stress, no habituation to that. And we as observers come sometimes look and go like, that's pathetic. Like, how are you so stressed by this small stimulus? Like, this is Mm -hmm. nothing. You are genetically weak or something like that. But in reality, it's probably just lack of exposure, right? Like Mm -hmm. that you were never, you were never taught to sit in discomfort for small periods of time and find out that you're, you're fine at the other end of it. You have some content on medication when it's appropriate. Mm. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about your experience in that. And do you think that we're over-medicating many dogs is my question. I do think that. And uh, there's going to be a lot of comments about, no, we're not, (laughs) because I already have gotten them. But I do think that just by surveys and studies that have been done, but also by the dogs that I see and that I work with. And there are certainly dogs that, you know, have anxiety or anxious behavior in in situations where they shouldn't be. 
it doesn't necessarily mean they need to be on medication. And I think we're going down this rabbit hole of this is a diagnosis of anxiety and how can we help as fast as possible these owners to cope better. And at this point, sure, give some, you know, medication for anxiety, but the goal still should be to get off of this as soon as possible. And I think that's not necessarily happening because you do see improvement. And you will see, well, it changed a lot of people's lives or a lot of people's lives in terms of their very anxious dog. Totally true. Their arousal level is going down. They find the right dosage. It does not mean that it actually changes something that we wanted to change. Mm -hmm. And if the goal of modern biology, of modern training, of modern vet therapy, rehab therapy is to take it to the next level and find something where they don't rely on this medication, then we should look a little bit closer on what this actually does. And lowering anxiety levels or arousal levels that comes with anxiety, right? This intolerance to uncertainty. And this is another thing. Anxiety is some generalized anxiety, just like something, anything else sometimes comes from human psychology. What does anxiety really mean? So worried about the future. Dogs don't worry like that. Much more likely to be fear conditioned because of lack of exposure or overexposure too early on. They can't cope with uncertainty. So the intolerance of uncertainty causes this nervous behavior, this constant high level of arousal. So now we give them serotonin inhibitors, like the classic SSRI medication, to lower their arousal. It doesn't change anything about how they actually see. And on top of that, so for me, what's concerning and interesting too is we're kind of creating a different imbalance. So now we are overreacting as dogs, as anxious dogs, to an environment where there shouldn't be any high arousal. Now we kind of dampen that. It's kind of like a different imbalance. Now we are maybe sometimes too chill or the dog actually, and we don't actually know what's really happening. Is the dog aware of like, I'm actually anxious, but I don't behave anxiously. That's kind of a conflict that you don't want to instill in your dog either. And medication in terms of anxiety hasn't really changed fundamentally. Now someone will say, yes, it has. Sure, does. it gets better, less side effects, all that. But what it actually does in the brain hasn't changed fundamentally because it's very, very hard to pinpoint where does the anxiety come from. There is not one single region in the brain, but we do need the research. And sometimes all it does or takes is, you know, really looking fear conditioning. Can we kind of change how the dog sees the world, create different pictures, help to cope with stress better, and then fade out the medication? So coming back to your original question over, over prescription. Yes, I mean, we do this with humans too. Of course, we overprescribe things, uh, uh, medication for dogs. We don't even know what the long-term effects are. So I don't say that don't prescribe any anxiety medication, but the focus still should be, how can we fade it out? What can we do along the way? Sometimes it helps to find a starting point. How can we understand anxiety better? What does it really mean in a dog? Because it's not the same as it is in humans. Mm. Can you just expand a little bit on what you mean by fear conditioning versus anxiety? Let me see if I am sort of understanding you correctly. Anxiety to me, I feel like is really, there's multiple outcomes and I don't know which one it's going to be. And some of those could be bad for me and some of those could be good for me. 
And I observe anxiety, you know, I'm at the moment not dealing so much with pet dogs. And, and, you know, the bread and butter of pet dogs is anxious and aggressive dogs. That's why people bring their dog to a trainer for the most part. I mostly work with working dogs. We use the same language of anxiety, but in a totally appetitive situation whereby mm-hmm. my dog, for example, just from I'm, I'm seven years better trainer than I was when I started with him. I get some leaking sometimes Mm -hmm. and it's usually because he has options. And when he thinks that I'm going to get the ball or I'm going to get the other toy or the the bite or whatever it is that it's going to be, that brings his arousal level to a point where he becomes anxious over which one is it going to be. And I want them both. I want them both so badly. (laughs) And the same behavior, if you could isolate it, I feel like there's plenty of people I could send it to and they'd say, that dog needs to be medicated immediately. That's a terrible situation. He's completely anxious. But then if I offer them the context and go, this dog is having the time of his life. He's leaking because he is so excited about the good things that can happen, but it's anxiety still. Like that's the label that I feel like that has to take. And so sometimes I think that that label of anxiety does a lot of harm because there's this expectation that that has to be a bad thing. Now, I'm not happy that my dog sometimes leaks when he gets so over aroused. I'm not happy about that, but it's not like it's a, that's going to cost me points in the game. It's not an indication that my dog's having a terrible time. And so Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could explain to me a little bit circumstances and situations where someone has told you that their dog is an anxious dog and the dog wears that label when in fact the dog has had a bad experience and sees it coming or thinks a potentially bad experience could be coming because it's identified triggers that have led that way in the past or just led to an unknown outcome. If you can expand on that for us, that would be fantastic because my meathead version of it is probably not great. Actually, the way you described it is not just valid, but it's really true, right? Anxiety doesn't have to be a bad thing if you want to see it in the context of arousal. Arousal is good for learning. I want my dog to be have a certain level of arousal when I go into training. Otherwise, my other dog, my German Shepherd, is so low level of arousal. It's like boring to train him. He doesn't want to do mm-hmm. anything. And then after arousal comes anxiety. And it skips over to a point where it's like harder to manage for us. Still doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad, right? The dog that is out of his or her mind when the owner comes home, right? Going bonkers is a level of anxiety out of anticipation what is going to happen or not. Mm-hmm. But the anticipation part where it becomes inappropriate or maladaptive from our point of view, that's when we start labeling as bad or good. And often that happens, like I said at the beginning, when we have expectations on how our dog's supposed to behave versus how they behave, plus the experience they had. And what I see is, this is also the thing with anxiety and fear conditioning, right? So that, that might happen very slowly, but gradually get bigger and bigger And applies to more and more scenarios. So if a dog had a bad experience in the daycare, because got overwhelmed with all the inputs day after day after day, twice a week, four times a week, eventually this dog is like, every time I see a dog, I'm overwhelmed and I don't know what to do with myself. And I want to get get out of here. Uh, I'm on a leash. I want to run away. And it starts to more or less generalize the anxiety to all kinds of environments. Sometimes it's very, very specific to a certain traumatic experience, and sometimes it broadens. And when it becomes broader, we don't recognize this as the root causes what happened early on in that dog's experience. And we don't see that 
that dog has just journalized the anxiety because it never learned how to understand what is actually happening and had made connections and how memories are being built. It's never just the one trigger. It's never just, it's the dog. It's the dog in that context. It's the dog in that context during that time of the day. It's the dog in that context during that time of a day, my mom putting me in the car. It's being going to the car. Now it's going outside. You know, it kind of expands because the brain is constantly trying to avoid certain scenarios that are aversive to the dog. And if that was something that the dog felt overwhelmed, it's fear conditioning, right? And that happens with under-socializing and it happens with over-socializing. And we try to then fix this with socializing more and more and the dog becomes more and more anxious. And that's where it becomes very maladaptive and where we put the dog on anxiety medication. Now, in situations where the dog is aroused and anxious and it's like ready to work, you know, that's where we're like, yay, let's do this. And this is kind of like this big difference between pet dog owners and working dog owners or trainers with the very same dog, two different kind of approaches to the same behavior. And that's problematic, right? That tells you you're putting something onto the dog's behavior that may or may not be true. Because on one hand, it's very, very beneficial to have certain level of arousal. Of course, if it's too much, it gets problematic in one situation and the other situation, it's maladaptive. So what is it? And I think finding a common language there and understanding, okay, what's the history in diagnosing generalized anxiety is something that should be the last resort and not the first. But I yeah. think we're going way too early, way too quickly to this dog is, has GA, generalized anxiety, because of all that. I have two questions on that. Can you explain a little bit the mechanism by which those like SSRIs, the anti-anxiety medication works? I had a client once say to me, they had a fearful dog. It had a very specific trigger, but that had generalized to many other things. By the time I got brought in, they'd already, uh, they'd been through a couple of other trainers and they had seen a veterinary behaviorist that had put the dog on medication. And when I asked, did the medication work? They said something that was fascinating. This is more than 10 years ago. And I still remember what they said. They said, he just reacts slower. And so it, the dog is still appears to be fearful of the thing that he's fearful of. He just doesn't seem to be able to deal with it in such an intense way. It's just slower mm -hmm. at dealing with it. And I thought that to me was an incredible insight, you know, by a pet dog owner, just to say that like, he doesn't feel better. He just is less concerned about it. those feelings are contained within now a less functional body. Can you expand on that and unbro science that a little bit for me? Yeah, so for SSRI medication, it's all about serotonin. Now, there's plenty of serotonin that is produced in the brain. There are a variety of serotonin receptors on neurons. And the idea is the more serotonin, the more content you are. And it's true for us. We kind of like this blissful state of mind. It's like, I'm happy where I am. I don't need anything else. And it affects the mood. It affects sleep, everything. And it's a little bit of a... Uh, seesaw relationship with dopamine, which is the opposite. It's like we let's go, let's do it. Whether this is actually reactivity aggression or kind of like working mentality, dopamine is very goal oriented. Like do it, and I'm dedicated to better my situation. Now, with serotonin and the medication, so they have various effects. Sometimes it's about just keeping the serotonin floating around longer. Sometimes it's increasing the receptors, so there's more capability of signaling the serotonin. And that's where all these different variations come in for, for SSR medication. But at the end of the day, they kind of work in a very similar fashion. 
Now, increased serotonin is kind of like lowering the arousal level because now there is no, no need for this go get ready state of mind for a dog. And the threshold just shifts. It doesn't mean that the dog isn't capable of reacting. It, it doesn't fix anything. It's just the threshold that shifts because the stress, epinephrine, cortisol, all these things that come in with lowering the, the readiness or heightening the readiness is no kind of dampen. It takes longer, like what that person said to you, or it just isn't there for low triggers, but still kind of kicks off for more intense triggers. What's interesting here is how do we do all that, what serotonin does without having to give this medication? Because again, the other point of learning is you need to have this arousal level. You need to have this goal-oriented state of mind, this neurobiological state of a dog to say, I'm ready to learn and change my brain because it does take effort. And serotonin is, you're not putting in any effort. We are fine where we are. And yet we still react because if the pressure is high enough or strong enough, there will still be a reactivity. But you mm. risk that your abilities, the dog's ability to learn is so much lower that you're not making any progress and actually the rehab work. Mm. I imagine that you probably have quite a lot of your clients that come to you are already on medication. Is that a fair assumption? Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm not a doctor. I definitely can't tell people, take your dog, your dog off that medication. But what I usually try and encourage people is let's use this as a step. Can you sort of expand on that a little bit? When someone comes to you, they've got their dog that's causing them a bunch of behavior issues. They say that it's anxiety. I've seen a veterinary behavioralist. They've put me on these drugs. You look at it and go, this dog's just having a bad time. This dog has fear conditioning. I intend to undo this. I know the process to doing it. How do you plan that removal of the drugs? Do you want to do that right away? Where in your training program do you set that as a target? I don't plan it and I honestly don't actively pursue or approach it either. I think there's part of me that I'm not a vet and I want to stay in my lane because I don't want to work against vets or vet behaviorists in that sense. And I also don't want to work against my students, as I call them, believe it's best for their dog. What I will do is teach them how to observe and understand their dogs better and have tools where they feel confident and exploring more. And that happens two out of five times that they will then come to me and it's like, what do you think about lowering the medication without me having to approach this actively? Because then they're ready, because then they feel confident enough. This is probably more important that if you lower medication, something will happen again in your dog's behavior. The dog has to adjust. You kind of messing with your dog's homeostasis of the brain. So there will be some adjustments. And if the dog freaks out where the dog hasn't freaked out in months, I need to know what the owners need to feel confident enough to handle that without jumping right back on the medication. And I can't force that. And I don't know that because, you know, most of the time it's, I don't see the dogs. I work with owners all around the world. So I just know what they tell me, but once they're ready, then I'm like, okay, let's talk about this. I prepare them. I get them ready. I explain what might happen, not happen. And then I urge them to keep me posted and have a really good conversation with their vets and vet behaviorists too. Because ultimately, I mean, they still want the dogs to be off medication too. You know, they might be overprescribing, but I'm not, they're not evil in that sense. And that's how the process happens. And I had a couple, one in particular that is completely off medication after being on a 
whole bunch of medication as a puppy. And then I had other dogs that just have really low doses now and potentially might explore even getting off completely after a while. So that has been my experience in terms of having this discussion. Dr. Mm. Melanie, I just, I want to ask a question in relation to something that you were talking about before, which is concepts in socialization. And you were talking about under socializing, which we're all advocates of. And it's something that we're, I guess, pushes in training puppies and dogs to make sure that they're receiving what I would call adequate socialization. When we were talking earlier about the ignorance in trainers as well is there's often a thought you can never over socialize a dog. And you brought up the word over socialization. I'm curious as to your thoughts and feelings about that. Oh, I have very strong feelings about over-socializing. I think this is kind of tipping into the other extreme after the pandemic where every dog was more or less under-socialized. And now we're trying to make up for it. And it's a a very strong narrative from every corner, from pet owners, from people who don't have dogs, from trainers, from vets, from vet behaviors. It's socialize, get as much exposure in, in the first, what is it, nine months, six months, three months, whatever it is, as possible. And this is completely ignoring where your dog is at and completely undermining the dog's capability of handling stress and inputs. And for most dogs, it goes well. You know, you don't have to worry about it. But then there are these dogs that are a little more neurotic and a little more anxious from the very beginning. And over-socialization can have very bad consequences. And I almost went through this with my own dog, Anya, who is a very neurotic male, you know, and she was not capable of understanding what's going on around here. And I could have been in the quietest park ever in Atlanta. And she was like, I'm not having it. We were like, okay, well, let's go to Home Depot and PetSmart, the whole kind of expose her, right? And and for me, it took a couple of weeks. That's again, even for me, you know, still having a trainer that I work with and help me like see things that I sometimes don't see, help me understand. It's like, just take a break from this, you know, and work on something that will help her overcome that better. And as a puppy, as a very young dog, how do you say, focus on me? It's all right. You don't You teach that. You have to give the brain the ability to learn first what an alternative could be if you feel stressed. Mm. And how you prompt that alternative if the dog feels stressed. Because at the end of the day, if the dog feels stressed, avoiding discomfort is still stronger than seeking pleasure. Now, you might be the source of pleasure, but it doesn't mean that the dog picks you and it's like about, I need to get out of here because I'm so scared of this super big truck that just rolled by me. You know, and that's where you want to take the time to teach these concepts. Engaging with me is always great. If you can't, I prompt it and I help you through this. Just you trust me, but you don't have that relationship from the very beginning. And it took my dog probably nine months, you know, where we did a lot of things and almost no walks at the beginning and a little bit more. And I'll be exposing her to everything and she's fine because she knows how to cope with it. And the timeline, this artificial timeline of when socialization has to happen is a problem. Because it doesn't have to happen in the first three, six months. It has to happen according to what the dog is capable of of processing. And the beauty of the brain is not every dog's the same and every dog has a different timeline. Understanding that will help you to create this dog that you want, just not maybe as quick as you want. Mm. 
the bro science version. <laughs> is, is, well, I've got a couple of puppies at the moment that are with my training partner, Jazz. We raise puppies to for people to sell and whatever. Just a few days after she took ownership of the dogs, we had an event and I said, are you going to come? And she's like, no, I can't take them anywhere where there's any risk of any sort of negative experience yet because I haven't got a way to recover them. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the bro science version of what you just explained in that we put a lot of work into building positive experiences as well as like a bit of resilience to stress in the gameplays that we do, just in loading the clicker, just in feeding them, make them work a little bit to get that food, overcome some difficulty, give them really like positive associations to a re-engagement with the handler. We're talking three or four days with the puppy. Like that doesn't take a lot of time. But now when we take them out, if something goes wrong, if there is a negative experience, if they are overstimulated by something, we can just bring them to a familiar state of mind and go, hey, with this marker, with this action, I can essentially trick you into feeling the way that I want you to feel and recover you from this situation and turn what could have been a negative experience into a positive experience or at the minimum, a neutral experience, just make it not a big deal to you. And I think one of the things that I see from over-socialized dogs, it's reactivity. And I think sometimes it gets diagnosed as like the same thing. It's an anxious or it's fear conditioning or something like that. But in reality, it's just a dog that's like, oh my God, I'm so stimulated by all this. And they're restrained. So now you're tipping into like barrier frustration and stuff like that. It's going to expose itself as aggression. It could easily be misdiagnosed or confused with aggression. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it actually becomes aggression. I suppose like technically that's it does become that it, it becomes real in the end, but it's just a dog that's like, Hey, you expose me to all this stuff. I now have big feelings about these things. I'm drawn to them like a fucking magnet and I can't get to them. I'm restricted by this leash. Now I'm leash reactive and it all just spirals out of control like that. Where if you just put in a foundation of like, Hey, this is how we interact with each other. I'm only going to take you places where stay sub threshold of the engagement with which I can bring you back to me. And we're going to build that up over the next six weeks. That's a probably a much safer approach. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, the behavior that we see, and it's tricky, and I don't blame dog owners because usually you don't really dive into all this until you have problems. (laughs) And you're like, with my next dog, I'm going to do everything really differently. But then the pendulum always swings too far and people do the opposite. They they create the opposite problem. Yeah, Yes. It's too strict or no boundaries at all. And finding the balance and kind of probably, I don't know, get a burn (laughs) a couple dogs (laughs) to get there. But you don't always see what you get. That's the, well, to me, the fascinating part of neuroscience. But there's certain states, things happening in the brain before you see the behavior. But all we can do is rely on what we see. Now you have this puppy that seems okay. Yes, it's a puppy. It's running around, but actually might really suffer in that moment, or vice versa. Actually, already planning to attack. You know, planning as in, you know, certain mm-hmm. things happening in terms of learning, and it's hard to say, hey, you didn't see it because you can't. You know, and the only way to get around this is, I guess, in a way, education. But I don't, I don't expect owners to go down this rabbit hole of all that stuff until you run into this. So maybe it's more the responsibility of trainers to communicate and, and unite in that sense and have the same narrative around how to raise a puppy. Yeah. In this conversation, there's been several conversations I've had with colleagues and friends and people who have just been training their dogs. And I often remind them of a song lyric by Kenny Rogers. The song is called The Gambler. And in the song, it says, you've got to know when to hold them and you've got to know when to fold them. A lot of poker players are experts in reading behavior. 
And I find that as good dog trainers, as people who are instructing other people or even people who are raising and training dogs themselves, you've got to be respondent to a lot of the behavior that you're seeing at the time. And that's what a lot of people don't have knowledge around. They don't know how to do that. Behavior presents itself and they think, what do I do? How do I respond to this? What am I supposed to do? They sort of fragment off into a lot of different realms of thinking where that is quite damaging a lot and that's how we often cause a lot of problems for our dogs is because nobody really gives these people or even ourselves when we're lacking that experience the guidance to say, okay, well, if that happens, there are several different things that we could try. The road that you keep walking down is the road that is presenting you with the best possible outcome. Unfortunately, only experiences allows you to to know what that actually looks like. What I did want to do, because that was more a statement of mine rather than a question to you, but I do have a question of curiosity from something that you said, and I just wanted to rewind the conversation almost towards the start when we had this. And it's not at all a gotcha moment or anything like that, because I wanted to talk about punishment. And you actually said the phrase, punishment is being so loaded these days. However, when I see punishment, I mean, it's, it's part of natural law. And I see it in same species or with other species towards different species. Take, for example, there was a documentary on Netflix a while ago called Chimp Empire. Although, you know, it's a condensed version of reality, it's dramatized for TV and it's showing people a different colonies of chimps coming together. And for me, I'm drinking from the chalice that's been presented to me. So I'm I'm limited on my actual knowledge there. But you watched the chimps have a clear understanding and I know that they have higher cognitive capabilities, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, all species know the difference between right and wrong when they're in the territory of other species and they know the consequences that's going to come of that as well. And you could see these chimps clearly understanding if I touch this fruit tree that's in the realm or the territory of these other chimps, the possibility of punishment to varying different degrees is highly likely this other colony of chimps catch me. Yet we dance around punishment continually like it's a word that should never be spoken. It's like Harry Potter. It's the it's the person that you should never mention or the thing that should never come up in a conversation. And I just find that so antagonizing to intelligence that people are reluctant to speak of something which is part of natural law. I would like to tease out your thoughts on that, Dr. Melanie. I'd like to see where you stand on this with your study and your education. And again, please, it's not a gotcha moment. I'm not trying to make you a fundamentalist on punishment or anything like that. It's in your own words. Tell us your knowledge and feelings on this. How much time do you have? <laughs> it's, it's an interesting question. And I kind of want to come at it not from a hands-on trainer perspective, because Again, you have more experience than I have in that sense, right? If anything, then you should share your your ideas here. But from this, this idea of what is punishment and the opposite, it's called pleasure. And punishment, I guess, goes hand in hand with experiencing pain or discomfort, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be punishment if mm. it wouldn't be in any way aversive or painful or uncomfortable. So where's the idea coming from that... I want to avoid any kind of discomfort my dog has to experience, like ever, right? If you're really, really, as a dog owner, as a trainer who is maybe prescribing to or subscribing to this pure positive camp, if you really be honest about it, you will realize it's impossible. 
because nuances matter here. But here's from a more neuroscience perspective why it is impossible. Pain, and it's just used pain as like encompassing for discomfort and punishment. Pain is needed to understand pleasure and vice versa. Pleasure is needed to understand pain. If you as the handler or someone who interacts with your dog don't learn how to deliberately, empathetically, consciously, and I guess you mainly, let's say that word, whatever that means, expose your dog to discomfort or pain, your dog's brain will no matter what. Because the way the brain is structured is, or the way, way the brain functions is, everything has to be a homeostasis, right? Mm. And yes, someone will say, I can teach my dog anything just with pure positive reinforcement. And that's true. And, you know, I, the time, the effort that goes into this and all the skills, like this is probably that deserves some acknowledgement, right? But you create a dog that is so motivated for this kind of reinforcement, for that pleasure that the brain, and it kind of almost tilts towards addiction, right? That the brain is like, wait a second, this is not normal. We got to balance this. I need to have homeostasis. I need to have an equilibrium of how I experience pleasure. Because what pleasure means is, you know, the buzzword dopamine goes up and all the feel good and motivation for it. Well, the brain cannot, in layman's terms, the brain cannot run out of dopamine. We have to balance that back out. We have to kind of find the baseline level. And how do you do this? Well, you increase pain pathways. And every single time, you give your dog something that is pleasurable, pain pathways are being activated almost at the same time. There is no pleasure without pain because you can't experience all the, the variety of pleasure without having pain counterbalancing it to make the brain understand what is more pleasurable, right? It has to come back. And pure positive reinforcement, there is no pure positive reinforcement. There is no pleasure without pain. You don't see it. It doesn't. It, it's not consciously. You don't experience it consciously. But if you crave another potato chip, it's because your pain pathways are activated and telling you life without that potato chip sucks. You might better get more of it, right? And the same happens for dogs if you always make it so reliant on pleasure. So that pain kind of has to happen. And the more pleasure happens, the more pain happens. But at the same time, and here's where the red kind of backfires, is eventually that I would be like, well, I've seen these treats so many times, like every single day, all the time. Now it's steak, now it's cheese, but it doesn't get me excited anymore. Because everything kind of tilted towards this pain equilibrium. So it's kind of shifted, weighted towards the pain. And now what do we have? One of the universal symptoms of withdrawal because you don't reach that height anymore is anxiety. Now we're creating these dogs that have this heightened level of anxiety. We talked about this before, over-socializing, under-socializing, but also, and this is probably, well, I don't know how it is being perceived in terms of your audience, but I do think that pure positive creates anxious dogs because they are overly reliant on this pleasure. They can't achieve the pleasure anymore. And the brain is like, wait a second, we got to go back here to where we were before in terms of homeostasis. So pleasure is always coming with pain and you can't process pleasure without the pain. 
and vice versa, right? So that it kind of goes both ways. You can't process pain without pleasure. So if you kind of experience some sort of pain or discomfort afterwards, you kind of feel probably a little better depending on the experience. And the same happens with dogs. You sometimes, and this is coming to the other direction, have balanced trainers that say, I just corrected the dog really hard. But look, the dog is happy, wagging the tail, coming up to cuddle. It's a happy dog. Can't be that bad. That's true and false at the same time, because how we interpret that is a little bit, yes, it might have been painful. It might have been uncomfortable. It might have been activating the pain pathways. But now the brain is like, well, let's go back to homeostasis and releasing dopamine and pleasurable kind of pathways in the brain to balance that out. And that's the behavior that you sometimes see. And I see this with my dog. She has some stressful moments. She has to go in the crate and doesn't want to. And then becomes that of like hyperactive and wants to jump up on me and seems like she wants to play. But it's kind of like this beauty of the pain-pleasure balance that happens in the brain. Once we learn to acknowledge that and don't deny that this is happening, I think we can have a much more open conversation about punishment because it's not so much about punishing the dog. It's how can we expose the dog without pushing the dog into feel for escape and avoidance, but let the brain do its job. Let the brain do what the brain knows what to do. And this release of pleasure after discomfort is very, very powerful because then the dog is like, I'm great. I can do this. I feel good about it. I can conquer any kind of stressful situation there is, right? And ultimately, isn't that what we all want for our dogs, whether it's working dogs or pet dogs that have to be okay in the coffee shop? You know, and, and understanding these little nuances and the neuroscience can really go a long way and potentially open the discussion to something that is not, oh my God, punishment, because it's it's happening, whether you want it or not. I think from my experiences, and I'm going to swing over to talk about law enforcement as a an argument to my case. In law enforcement, you're expected that at some stage you're going to have to use force in whatever you're doing to subdue the person or the assailant that you're working against. The law expects you to use force and even the public accepts that you're going to use force. Where you cross the line is when you use excessive force and that's even when the law is not on your side. And that's what I had to learn when I was in security is you actually become the criminal when you use excessive force. And only a understanding of what excessive force is by either experience somebody teaching you what it is or being punished yourself for using it, will you understand what excessive force actually looks like? And I think when we get into the realm of dog training, when people start fearing the word punishment, which is troubling to me to hear that concept being bandied around so much, but what my concern is and what I think is happening a lot is people are concerned about excessive punishment or even crossing over into abuse. I really feel that those are conversations that we really need to be having. Those are conversations I'm encouraging people in the industry to have is excessive punishment and abusing dogs. That's a problem. That's even a problem for me. A balanced trainer, somebody who uses tools, who is an advocate for acceptable and usable or allowable punishment But there are times where I watch people punishing and I'm saying, okay, well, that's excessive. There's no need to go into that realm. The dog learned a minute ago. It already, it was showing you, it was advocating. I'm aware of what I I need to change my behavior now. But 
the person is obviously either uneducated or feeling big feelings about it and they're pushing the envelope further. Do you feel that that is more aligned to the problem here where people are trying to shrink away from using the word punishment and so forth? I think this is one aspect, but I think the other main driver is even if it's moderate, why would I have to use it if I can do the same with just pure positive? Because again, you can, right? If you commit it, whether this is realistic, different story, whether the dog owners don't tend to have the patience to Mm -hmm. stick to it. It's also a different story, right? But the narrative of one side of the campus, why would I, if I can do it differently? So while there is this, and I think that that part is shrinking, and I think more and more trainers that use excessive force are being called out for that, right? Yeah. You can hide the lack of skills a little easier behind using force or using punishment, right? Because it seems like the dog learned or kind of just doesn't do the bad behavior it didn't want the dog to do without you having to have true understanding of what you're doing. Whereas with pure positive, the real good ones, you got to have to have a lot of understanding, not necessarily like, you know, just giving treats and, and creating some obesity among dogs, but it's a little bit easier to hide. And that's probably the problem because there is no, it's this ping pong game, right? Like everyone who has a dog and is a, is a dog owner and wants the best for their dogs, why would I have to use punishment? I don't want to. I don't want it for myself. We're living in a society where punishment, pain for ourselves is bad. And I go into that, you know, just use treats until they run into problems. And then that doesn't work anymore. So they're being ping-ponged to the other side. And there might not work to a certain extent because then they feel bad about this. And it's this, the, the true problem lies in understanding that it's not one or the other. It never is. And we need to acknowledge what is the middle part, what I mentioned before, is there is no pain without pleasure. And there's no pleasure without pain. Mm. And if we can kind of honor that, the beauty of the brain doing it in ourselves and have the same narrative around it, and then go out and say, okay, how can we do this preparing our dog, being empathetic enough so the dog doesn't feel too stressed yet experience a stress without crumbling and it aligns with the timeline that works for everyone here and that part i don't know how how we're going to get there honestly because we would have to change our own understanding for ourselves in terms of pain and pleasure first we always want the best for others right that we love most which includes our dogs and Going in and seeing a dog maybe whine when for the first, give an example. My dog, Anya, I walk her on a prong collar, a tool, a versus tool, right? And I do that because she's very committed and I don't want her to hurt her trachea. At the same time, it took me three months to get her to a point where she's understanding of leash pressure in the way that makes sense to her. And I took such many steps, you know, even if it's an aversive tool, I took the same amount of time to teach her all these things because I was so into in my own. It's like, I don't want to see her suffer. I don't want her to, to experience too much of discomfort. Yet she needs to be able to walk and understand leash pressure and be very light on the leash with all the training that I want to do with her. But I never lead with that. You know, whenever I talk to students, I meet them where they're at and we try things until it doesn't work. And then we try it in a different way 
so that it aligns more with this balance that I was explaining earlier. Mm. And sometimes, <laughs> maybe that's the beauty of, you know, coming in as someone who who says like, here's all the brain signs and whatnot, because I do acknowledge and I do appreciate very much the trust that my students put in me, right? And whatever I say and however I position what I teach makes them believe that I do want the best for them and their dogs. So they're a little bit more open. But maybe that's also the part that's missing sometimes in terms of this is the way to go for some trainers and others like, no, this is the way to go. If you were to come all a little bit more and like say, hey, I'm not so sure either. What do you do? You know, and kind of just have a little bit more. Hey, these are the options and we explore them and see what's best for your dog. And I'm open to anything that also works for you. I don't know. Maybe that would actually open up more minds to the idea of correction and punishment isn't the end of the world. And again, I said it so many times. There is no pleasure without pain anyways. Nicely said. On that, I think... The conversation, certainly in the pet dog space, conversation around pain aversives, it always gets put in the category of punishment. Mm. And I think in pet dog training, we do a lot of this, right? For the most part, we will stop an unwanted behavior using punishment, and then we'll use positive reinforcement to teach an incompatible behavior. And for the average balanced trainer, that's a really easy recipe. We, we immediately start trying to teach it in a low arousal environment. But then if there is some sort of conflict, we can go, okay, hey, that's off the table. Punishment takes on many forms. As you said, it can be very mild if it's set up correctly and the understanding is correct. And then the dog happily does the other behavior knowing that one's off the table as he does it because it's positive reinforcement towards the thing that we want. Something I've observed over about the last 10 years, especially in the sort of sport dog and probably the working dog world is that we had formerly, you know, when people were training dogs to really high standards, it was very compulsion based and therefore like negative reinforcement. There's the old sort of adage, people talk about punishment-based trainers. As soon as people say that, I usually dismiss them because I'm like, you don't understand how training works. If you see someone using a prong collar to teach a dog to heal and you say that that's punishment-based training, you don't know what you're talking about. And I just immediately dismiss those people. But what we've seen in the past is formerly fairly compulsive training because that's how people knew. We're talking 30, 40 years ago, whatever. And then there's this emergence of positive reinforcement into the training. And people sort of until about 10 years ago, I think, largely fell into one of those categories. They were compulsion-based or they were positive reinforcement-based. And even balanced trainers would still use the positive reinforcement to teach their dog healing and their positions and stuff like that because you can. And when you've got the right dog that's dialed in, like why would you use anything else? But because of the availability of education, people like Bart Bell and people like Ivan, people like Michael Ellis who are showing people like, no, you can totally use negative reinforcement as well as positive reinforcement. You can fuse those two things together use negative reinforcement into the behavior and then positive reinforcement out of the behavior. And what I've observed, certainly with like the higher drive dogs and what's happened, you know, in, in certainly in the game that I play PSA is over the last five years, the standard of the dogs and what they're able to achieve has increased dramatically. It's because people are learning to fuse those two things together. And we see a lot of people now whose dogs can say heal and hold an incredibly stringent criteria of the behavior, despite madness happening around the dog, where the dog is just committed to the behavior. And the madness is appetitive. It's something the dog wants always. It's usually to bite or whatever. So what people have gotten quite good at 
And it's something, you know, I pride myself on being pretty good at. And, and it's what I teach for the most part is this fusion of both and creating this space where the dog is in the behavior in anticipation of a positive reinforcement. Like I'm doing this. The main reason I'm doing this, what is driving this behavior is I want what I could potentially be paid when I do this behavior. But I also know that I have to, if I come out of this behavior, there's an aversive consequence. Now, I sort of describe that as thrilling. That's my bro science way of explaining it. And we observe that. I know how to read a dog and I see dogs that love that position. And even when the tools come off and when there's no way to compel the dog to do it and there's no way to pay the dog for having done it, the dog still holds itself in that position in this thrill. Like it's the safe emergency puts me here and I love this position and I'm observably really happy in this position. But... What's actually happening in a dog's mind there? Because that is, in my opinion, like when you talk about there's no pleasure without pain, that is bringing that middle position, that space between pleasure and pain into a particular behavior. And I observe dogs that look like they're having the time of their life, but I'm not in their mind. And Mm -hmm. I wonder, you probably can, certainly can do a much better job of being (laughs) in their mind than I can. What's happening there? What's the neurochemistry? And am I wrong? Are they not having a good time? Does it just look like they are? What's the truth? (laughs) Well, if you talk about extreme motivation, again, I think a good comparison is being an addictive behavior, kind of creating an addiction to a certain behavior, especially if it's aligned with some genetic predisposition, like fighting for certain dog breeds, right? And if you channel that, and if this is your only option, right? And if you want to get this there, then you got to do this, this, and this, right? They kind of conceptualize that. And if you remove all other options, I don't know, zoomies or unstructured walks, uh, sorry, unstructured play, for example, you know, then they kind of just, okay, this is the way to go. But ultimately what's underlying is this pursuit of pleasure. It's not so much the actual reward at this point, like you said, right? It's not so much about the reward anymore. It's this pursuit of it that becomes addictive because that's what shoots up this dopamine levels in these dogs. And as soon as the idea is like, if they get a hinge of, I'm not about, I'm not going to get it. That kind of gap of anticipation and then disappointment hangs dopamine levels. And that discrepancy makes them wild for, I am going to try it again. I'm going to try real good and real hard. I'm going to be so focused So it's a very goal-oriented state of mind that is driven by dopamine that you create. And that addictive behavior is channeled into a very specific kind of outcome for the dog, the bite, or whatever it is in that moment, play in a certain way, hugging, whatever it is, right? And yes, they're having the time of their life because they're driven by something, right? It's definitely not contentment in that sense because they have a goal, right? And in the same way, getting someone who is addicted to something whatever alcohol right they go out their way to potentially get to that substance and they seem to be very determined and they're like really focused they're not going to have the time of their lives right you wouldn't necessarily describe it as that but they're very focused they're very goal-oriented and this can be unhealthy and maladaptive like an addiction in that sense and, and, and drug abuse or it can be something channeled into that aligns with what the dog wants anyways, intrinsically, that's intrinsically rewarding. And that part, that's a skill, right? To kind of channel that and use that and build up to this motivation there, but also kind of eliminate other options 
and putting up almost like traffic signs. Like you can go there and you can go there, but you can't go there in order to get where you want to get, right? And seeing that, understanding that there's just some really intense neurobiology and the reason why <laughs> Bergemelinoise, for example, are now such a preferred breed is they probably a little bit more intense in all these things, right? Maybe their dopamine levels shoot a little higher and more intensely and last longer and all that. They get really obsessed with these certain activities. And sometimes when I think about this and I hear, you know, friends like train military dogs and, and then I hear them hug and it's like, these dogs don't play. They're just really intense and obsessed and they, they, <laughs> they don't get their Kong or whatever toy it is. You better hide, right? They get really, again, how far can we take this to say this is still a good mental state of mind? Because this is far beyond being content, right? There's like a really strong um, motivation towards something. And you you create this through the motivation of reinforcement, positive reinforcement. It's like the reward at the end. So basically what I'm saying is what's happening is they're motivated to get something and they want it. They want it. They like it, but mostly they want it and they're willing to do a lot of things. That's how you get all these really crazy dogs and, and in the military world, right? They go through, I don't know, what kind of obstacles to, to get what they want. And at the, some point, it's not so much about the reward anymore because you don't get to play necessarily with a Kong when you're like in the field and on a mission, right? But you've trained to find this motivation, the activity itself. And you can train that and you can harness that if you know how to. And be very skillful about it. And you probably, with a very, very motivated dog, you need very little force. You might be surprised how little force you need or how little punishment you need if you just channel that genetically driven motivation for something. And the ones that are abusive of like dogs that in my eyes are already very motivated to work, like you said, they just don't probably know what they're doing and they just have probably a bigger ego than actually the skill set to work with a dog in front of them. That has changed, you know, it obviously comes with education. We didn't know 50 years ago. Now, mm. like, we can't blame them for not knowing because now we're just starting to know more and more and more. But now it's also a responsibility to kind of hone into this and learn more. Yeah. My final question for you mm. is, what's the one thing when you've looked at bro science trainers like myself, where you're like, <laughs> oh my God, you guys don't get it. There has to be something that when you look at the spectrum of trainers out there, there's something that exists in the zeitgeist of trainers that are good, right? Like that are effectively training dogs. There's plenty of bullshit we could talk about of people saying dumb things, but what is there something in the zeitgeist that people have accepted as being like, oh yeah, that's true. We believe that. And it's just a total misunderstanding of the real science. I think if I had to say one thing and it might open up a whole new can of worms, but I'm very much interested in aggression in dogs. Mm -hmm. What bothers me is this, <laughs> this combination of, say you have a reactive dog, pet dog, and the dog's leash reactive, and you want to set up a training session to rehabilitate. To me, it just is so artificial to say, there's in a distance in the training setting, my, my very calm dog, and you come here with your reactive dog, and we find the distance that works so the dog doesn't blow up. And then we just have the dog sit next to you and you feed, 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 feed. When I hear that, that's to me is like, okay, this is so against what I think is going on in the dog right now. And in theory, I understand why it does make sense to someone who would 
set it up that way. And they're like really obvious behavior protocols, bad, right? Behavior adjustment treatment, how you do this. But I have just too many students who've done this and it just did not get them to where they need to be. It's twofold. For one, getting a dog column who's actually wanting to be reactive and having the dog to sit and focus is adding so much more conflict than is needed. You could make it so much easier on your own handling and the dog. And then the other thing is just because you don't see a reactivity in terms of lunging, barking, doesn't mean the dog isn't already in an aggressive state of mind. Mm. And this is very new data. And this is very intriguing data that in these research studies and optogenetics has been life-changing, not in dogs, but in, in, in rodents. It's like you can turn on the activity of certain neurons and put the dog in an aggressive state of mind, not the dog, the mouse. But what you see is a mouse who's just hanging out in the cage, just hanging out, being super chill, seemingly. But in the brain, everything fires aggression. And as soon as you put something into the cage, and it might just be a glove, this mouse is going ballistic on that glove and attacking, even though it looked like it's not at all. And that's very intriguing because just because the dog isn't reacting and might seem calm and seeing the other dog and you feel like you have made some progress doesn't mean the dog is not actually reacting, especially since dogs are predators and not prey animals, right? So the proactive aggression, I'm wondering, is like, do we underestimate that? And again, on top of that, if it's driven by some sort of fear or whatnot, and getting the dog to be calm, even though adrenaline is up and cortisol is up, and all this dog wants is like move one way or another. And you're like, no, sit, focus, and all that, adding so much conflict. And I wish, I wish more trainers would be more open to change that from the very beginning and say, no, we're not doing that. We're going to keep your dog moving and you're going to start doing the engagement before we come here. And I'm going to check how the communication works. And then we just implement it in your environment where you are on a daily basis. That's probably my my biggest frustration because, you know, it takes some time to explain that and it takes some time to convince someone. It's like, these things, they might work. They just take so much time and you're much more likely to fail and stop working on it than you're actually following through. And little changes and nuances that you make can actually make a huge difference in your progress. Mm, great answer. I enjoyed that. Especially for such a difficult concept too. It is. And for me, when I work with students, it's I don't expect them to get it. Or when I work with trainers to to understand it, incorporate it and change things. You know, it took me so long to understand it myself. And I'm again, I'm making very dramatic decisions in terms of now I need to learn this. And and now I'm gonna go full into I don't know how rats play. It might not have anything to do with dogs, but it kind of does. And then now I do into human psychology, whatever. So I don't expect anyone to do that. It takes so much time and it's also a little crazy, but as they marinate in it and and in a weird way, social media has helped because I only have one minute in my reels. So I have to compress <laughs> things in like one minute. Like, okay, what is the minimum that I want to convey, right? And then you sprinkle that in and then maybe keeps them thinking. It's like, oh yeah, this is what I observe with my dog too. And we change this. And ultimately I don't want them to just follow something that I tell them. I want them to be creative enough to say, I subscribe to this methodology, but I think this might actually work too with my dog and I'm still happy and my dog's happy. Yeah. Do you think that that movement 
I know there's many aspects to why that works. I personally feel like metabolizing the stress, like, and again, I'm using bro science terms, but for myself, I get into a confrontation, something like that. And I can maintain myself. I communicate civilly with the person. It's all fine. And then I go home and beat the fuck out of a punching bag. You know what I mean? <laughs> or I throw a kettlebell into outer space because I have to metabolize that aggression. And I, uh -huh. I could bottle it for that moment. Like, no worries. I can keep myself mm -hmm. together, but it's in me and it has to go somewhere. And I think mm -hmm. that's one of the things that gets missed when we're just talking like, give the dog a treat, right? It's that... Just use your body because mother nature's screaming that you need to make action. And if you've made a choice, like, no, this is not an appropriate time. I know that this is an appropriate thing to do, but it still has to happen just in another context and in another way. Yeah. It's lightning yeah. in a bottle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It said really well. And I have students that say, well, I play with my dogs now on the walk because my dog was reactive to strangers walking by. And whenever my dog now sees a stranger, it tucks really hard. I was like, that's mm. great. <laughs> and she's like, can I do that? It's like, yes. Obviously, a much better outlet than, you know, lunging at that stranger. Yeah. And that is because, yeah, this has to go somewhere. And the activity, even if you don't see it, there's something happening. And you don't have to understand exactly what's happening. If you want to, you know, I can obviously talk all day about this. But you don't have to, to just sometimes follow your intuition because we are not that different from dogs when it comes to these very primary emotions of rage and, and fear, right? And like we have the experience and we can learn to control impulses. So can dogs, but they need a little bit more help because they don't have the, the logical thinking and rational thinking we have. Amazing. Glenn, got anything to add, mate, before I do the wrap up? Only that I'm super impressed with the reels that you put out. I love the myth busting that you're doing which is what attracted me to want to reach out to you and invite you onto the show. Please continue to do that. It's absolutely fantastic, not only for our community, but also for me. I'm following along. I'm thinking, oh man, I'm learning some fantastic material here. The more I'm getting into this, the more attracted I am to neurosciences in development and what's going on in our own psyche and the psyche of how we can improve as trainers and how we can understand and bridge that gap between us and our dogs. So huge thank you from me to you, but I'm sure from the community, because I can see that people in the community are resonating and they're really appreciative of what you're putting out there. I think at some stage we should have you back and do some myth busting on some other topics like develop a bunch of things that people That'd are talking fun. about and have you come back on and tell us the realities around that, if that would be agreeable to you. I love that. Yes, let's do it's like kind of like a quiz. Like we think this is happening. What we should do is invite some of our listeners to put some questions to us yeah. and send a bunch of those questions to you and have you prepare something in response and say, great, there's a show in this. We could throw a whole episode together just on these five questions or whatever. Yeah, I love that. I'm always up for that. Yeah, terrific. Awesome. Dr. Melly, thank you so much for making time for us. I really appreciate it. It's been a fascinating conversation um, for me and I'm sure for many people listening. How do people get in touch with you? Plug everything. Mm. I was <laughs> just, I just got sucked into your sales funnel. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm in there. Plug your course, everything that you've got, because I think that you provide a, a fascinating insight and I want more people to be able to learn from you. Yeah. For whatever, I'm trying to cover anything and every level in terms of where you're at. So if you're someone who just wants to indulge in this kind of conversations, you know, I have my YouTube channel, obviously my social media, Instagram. I'm trying to post something 
every two weeks, you know, as you can imagine, putting out content can be <laughs> quite challenging, but Exhausting. you know, I'm having my rhythm. So that's all the content you can obviously indulge in and consume. For those who just have like sometimes really, really minor issues, you can always reach out to me. I'm doing virtual one-on-one sessions. And then for those who are really interested in getting to the nitty gritty of this and, and merging the newer signs with hands-on, all the things we talked about, I do have now finally, took me a year, available my program. It's called Never Alone Accelerated. It is an online program. It is self-paced, but it steps you through all the things we talked about, anxiety and fear, conditioning and aggression and how to reshape them. So with practical insights. So this is something that is for anyone, whether you're a trainer or just a dog owner who is like, I need to have a different perspective that's there. And I'm always here to answer any emails. I'm trying to to really respond to any kind of email and any kind of message I get. I'm sometimes a little slow because there's a lot, like you mentioned, but I'm really, really happy to see that there is some interest in this. And there is, I do see the shift and I want to learn more and I'm open to this kind of conversation. So if I can respond, I will. So I'm you know, email or comments on social media can reach me. Amazing. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Mm. That's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe, do that through whatever subscription service you download us from, and then just go to another one and do it there. Nobody checks that you can leave reviews on whatever you want. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to jump into our Patreon. There's a giant, there's years and years and years. So giant much. backlog of information. So much good stuff. There's new stuff going in there all the time. I go live and answer questions from whatever you got, everything from dog training to life, the universe, and the, the meaning of it all. I don't do those ones very well. Just the dog training ones are the ones I answer well. But they all know the uh, answer is 42, so it's just given away. Everybody light. knows that. Everyone knows. Everybody knows that. Yep. The other way you can support the show if you're keen on it is you can jump into spring and buy some of our merch. It's always wonderful when we see people wearing our t-shirts when oh, we yeah. travel around. They're the coolest things around. We don't sell socks or underpants, but you know, like you could make your own, I suppose, and send us a picture. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> oh, water bottles. <laughs> um, if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is to jump into the Facebook discussion group. That's where there's conversations about episodes. We post when there's a new episode that comes out anytime and you can have your say about Dr. Melanie and the things she's told us and ask questions. You can do all that in the Facebook discussion group. Or if it's something you want to get in touch with us individually or privately about, you can mm. shoot us an email. We are info at the canine paradigm.com. I love you all. Goodbye. Here comes the music. Ha, 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 ha.